Hey there, I'm Joey Dean, lead pastor of South Lakes Church in Oklahoma City. At South Lakes Church, we exist to be radically devoted to God, relentlessly committed to true community, and remarkably passionate for the lost. We hope your faith is strengthened and you grow closer to Jesus as you listen this morning. Now let's jump into this week's message. church this morning. Amen. I'm glad you're here this morning. Why don't we go ahead and grab a Bible, if we will, and find the book of Genesis. It's the easy one because it's the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 17 this morning. There should be a Bible in the seat in front of you or behind you or wherever you're sitting. Also, if you go to Version, and there's all sorts of different places that you can get sermon notes and all that kind of jazz. And so you want to take some notes this morning as we are in week two of our Names of God series in which we are looking at different characteristics about God or different attributes about God. And the great way to learn more attributes or characteristics about God is to learn the different names that he's given himself or that other people have ascribed to him. So last week we started with Yahweh and we learned about what Yahweh is the personal name of God. And, and we learned that that's what Moses, uh, when God used when he introduced himself to Moses. And so a couple things real quick. I would just encourage everyone, our next uh, Bible study for this week, the El Shaddai is out on the front. And so that's the name we're going to be looking at today. There are five verses. It covers Monday through Friday. All right. And this will cover all the different ways that uh, El Shaddai is used. Uh, throughout Genesis and also in Exodus. So I would encourage you to, uh, to get that. It's free, all right? And it helps you to dive into God's word. So El Shaddai, here's the thing about El Shaddai. It's very different from Yahweh or Jehovah or in your Bibles, it's the Lord in all caps because um, El Shaddai is used only seven times throughout the Old Testament and then you don't even really see it again until you get to the book of Revelation, all right? In fact, it's way different than Yahweh because Yahweh is used over 6,800 times all throughout the Bible. In fact, El Shaddai is the exclusive name that God uses for himself and of himself to talk to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, the formal name of God, Yahweh, isn't even used till you get to Exodus where God introduces himself to Moses. We talked about that last week. And so if you're taking notes this morning, and I hope everyone is because there's a lot of stuff we're going to unpack this morning about El Shaddai. But El Shaddai in its most simplistic definition is this. It means almighty. It's almighty or it's all powerful. So when you hear, when you see the words God almighty in the Hebrew, that is El, which is God, Shaddai, all right? So this is uh, God almighty. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. But before we do, let's pray. Let's pray and let's just ask God to, to be in this place. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If you're online, I would invite you to do the same thing this morning. And I would invite you to pray two prayers this morning in your heart. Number one, would you say, God, help me to be present in this moment? And then secondly, would you pray, God, will you speak to me personally this morning? And Father God, we come to you in the mighty name of Jesus, and we just lay ourselves at your feet this morning whether we're here in person or we're watching online or we're gonna watch later in the week, wherever it is that we're, we're gonna be worshiping this morning, God, I pray that we would just lay ourselves at your feet and we would just ask you to come speak into our heart language, that you would meet us where we are, whether that's in the midst of brokenness or joy, 
whether that's in the midst of a great week or a horrible week, God, I ask and I beg that you would meet each individual where they are this morning. God, I pray for words of peace and comfort on those that need it. I pray for words of restoration for those who need it. I pray for words of conviction for those who need it. God, I just pray that your spirit would cater what's happening here this morning over these next several moments to speak into where people are. God, show us this morning that you are El Shaddai. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So this morning, let's look at El Shaddai. And because there's only seven references throughout the Old Testament, we're actually going to look at all seven references this morning. We're going to do it very quickly. And this is why you need your Bible, because five out of the seven references are actually found in Genesis. And so we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 17. It's not going to be up on the screen. So you need to look on your phones, in, a, in, a, in your Bible, or whatever it is, all right? Genesis 17, Amber read it earlier. Here is the first mention of God. El Shaddai. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So we see right off the bat that when God introduces himself to Abram as El Shaddai, he does it by declaring to him a covenant that he's making to Abram that he would be the father of many nations. In fact, God is very clear that if you are able to count all the stars in the sky or all the sand on the seashore, that's how many descendants would descend from Abram. Here's the problem, is that this promise was made in the face of a natural impossibility because Abraham or Abram and Sarai were not young chicks anymore. They were well past their, uh, their, their, their body's ability to be able to, uh, to reproduce. But God says, don't worry about that. I am El Shaddai. In fact, I have such confidence in the promise that I'm making to you, Abram. I'm changing your name. No longer will you be Abram, which means an exalted father. You will now be called Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Flip over to the right. Go to Genesis 28 this morning. Genesis 28. We're going to fast forward. And this is Abraham. He had a son. His name was Isaac. And then Isaac had a kid, and that kid's name was Jacob. And so here we got in Genesis 28, verse 1. It says, Then Isaac, which is Abraham's son, called Jacob, which is Abraham's grandson. And so he blessed him, and he directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. El Shaddai bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. And so we see Isaac or Abraham's son speaking to Abraham's grandson with absolute confidence in the promises that El Shaddai had made. God says that we will be, uh, we will be relatives to a multitude of people. So I want you to go marry the right person within our family so that the promise can continue to come true. Flip over to Genesis 35. Genesis 35. All right, we're keeping going, all right? We're at number three here. Genesis 35. So this is Jacob now. He's married, and uh, he's having a little conversation with God. And in verse 11 of chapter 35, it says, And God said to Jacob, I am El Shaddai. 
Be fruitful, multiply, because a nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. So we see God's reaffirming the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob, going, listen, I told your granddaddy I was going to do this. I told your daddy I was going to do this, and now I'm going to do this for you. I am El Shaddai. Flip over to uh, chapter 43. So Jacob had a lot of kids. I mean, he had a lot of kids because he was married a lot of times, all right? And his favorite kid was the name by a kid by the name of Joseph. In fact, he loved Joseph so much that he would dote upon Joseph. And he gave Joseph a gift, and he, he gave him a coat of many colors. Well, Joseph's brothers were not fans of this. So they sold Joseph into slavery, But they went back and told good old dad, hey, I'm sorry, an animal killed your favorite son in the wilderness. We're so sorry, all right? And and Jacob had no clue that he'd actually been sold to slavery. Well, through God's providence, Joshua went from slave boy to second in command in Egypt. He was the second most powerful person in the entire world. And he was put into that position during a famine where they would not have any produce for a long time. And so what happens is that Egypt built up storehouses and they stored all the food and Joshua was put in charge of that. And all the people from all over the world would come to Egypt and would buy food during the famine. Well, Jacob was sitting back one day and looked at all his sons and said, listen, we are going to starve to death. Go to Egypt and buy food from the Egyptians. So J- Jacob's sons rolled into town and walked in to the, to the, uh, to the room, uh, to, to the royal room where Joshua was, their brother who they did not recognize. But Joshua knew who they were. And Joshua began to probe and he began to ask questions. And he found out that Benjamin, which was Jacob's youngest son, which was Joshua's younger brother, was alive still. And so he says, listen, here's what's going to happen. I'm not going to give you anything until I see Benjamin. Bring me Benjamin. And they're like, no, no, you don't understand. Our, uh, we had another son, uh, we had another brother. He died and almost killed our dad. If I bring, if we bring Benjamin now, this is not going to be a good outcome. And Joshua says, I don't care. And by the way, I'll take one of the older brothers. I'll take you as a down payment until you get back with who I really want to see. So Joshua's brother, uh, Joseph's brothers, I'm sorry, Joseph's brothers, they leave. And they leave and they go back to their dad and they tell their dad, listen, there's this guy and, and uh, we, he's just, he's in charge of the food and he won't give us any food until we get back. And so this is what he says in verse 48, verse three. This is Jacob. And Judah said to them, the man, I'm sorry, I'm on the wrong text, 48. It says this, and Jacob said to Joseph, wait, I am way off guys, I am so sorry. 43.14, my apologies, says this. All right. May El Shaddai grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin, and as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. And so we see that Jacob speaks a blessing over the kids as they go back and present themselves to Joseph. Flip ahead to verse 48, or to chapter 48, and we see here that Joseph and his dad, Jacob, are now reunited, and, J- and Jacob is about to die. And here's what happens in verse 3 of chapter 48. It says, And Jacob said to Joseph, 
God Almighty, or El Shaddai, appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And so we see that Jacob is reaffirming to Joseph the promise that El Shaddai makes. And then what happens is that the Jews are all enslaved in Egypt and they're enslaved for 400 years until God raises up a man by the name of Moses. We were introduced to him last week. And God is talking to Moses about what's going to happen. And in Exodus 6, you don't have to turn there. It's going to be up on the screen. Exodus 6, 2, this is God speaking. And God spoke to Moses and he said to him, I am the Lord. That's Yahweh, by the way. And I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now that's a whole other sermon for, another, for, for a different time. But the thing that you need to understand is that El Shaddai was enough for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to believe. They just need to know that God was almighty. And the last reference in the Old Testament to El Shaddai is actually a very odd one. It doesn't really explain about the, uh, the promises of God. It's more of an explanation of who God is as El Shaddai. It's in the, in the prophetic book of Ezekiel. It's Ezekiel chapter 10. It's going to be up on the screen. It's verse 3. It says, Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house when the man went in and a cloud filled the inner court. So Ezekiel has seen a vision here. And it says, and the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And then it says this, and the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. And so we see a description here. That the sound that the wings of the cherubim made was so thunderous and so inescapable, much like the voice of El Shaddai. Because when El Shaddai speaks, his voice thunders to every corner of the universe. So here's the thing that we got to do with this, though, is that we have to talk about, well, why does it even matter? Like, you talk about God's Almighty, and you talk about God's all this and all that, and a bag of potato chips, but what in the world does it matter for me today? What does it mean that God is Almighty? So let's talk about that. Let's talk about what does it mean that God is Almighty? And if you're going to describe what does it mean that God is Almighty, you have to also explain what does it not mean. And the thing that you need to understand is this. Contrary to popular perception, God being almighty does not actually mean that God can do everything. He can't. He can't do everything. And the reason is this, is because it is impossible for God to violate his own character. God cannot violate his own character. See, God is righteous and because he is righteous, it is literally impossible for him to perform an unrighteous act. So therefore, it is impossible for God to lie, steal, cheat, or to sin in any other way that you and I so willingly choose to do on a daily basis. God is also just, which means that God cannot act in an unjust manner. Now, this one rubs us the wrong way because a lot of times when God throws down justice, we don't like the justice is thrown down. So we will begin to say, but there's no way that God's just because, now we talked about this last week. When you try to define who God is, you are on the wrong side every time because God is self-defining. He is not defined by what we think. So when we sit back and we go, well, I wish God would do it this way, I'll tell you what, you build yourself a galaxy and then you can tell God the right way to do it, all right? But God is consistent. 
And because we know that he's consistent, we know that he will always act righteously and he will always act justly. So what does this mean, though? So God can't do some things. Well, but on the opposite side of the coin, it means this, that God can literally do anything and everything that he desires with the caveat as long as it rings true with who he is. It's got to be consistent with who he is as God. So God can do anything and everything that he desires, The best way to put this is that I found an old quote by an English Puritan preacher boy by the name of Stephen Sharnock. And Stephen Sharnock wrote about the almightiness of God. And here's a quote by Stephen Sharnock, the English Puritan preacher boy. It says this, The power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he pleases, whatsoever his infinite wisdom may direct, and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will may resolve. As holiness is the beauty of all God's attributes, so power is that which gives life and action to all the perfections of the divine nature. How vain would be the eternal counsels if power did not step in to execute them. Without power, his mercy would be but feeble pity, his promises an empty sound, His threatenings, a mere scarecrow. God's power is like himself, infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. And it can neither be checked, restrained, nor frustrated by the creature. What does it mean that God is all-powerful? It means exactly what you think. It means that because God is almighty... That means that we believe that his provision, his deliverance, his protection, the fulfillment of all prophecies made by him, the execution of all his promises, the the ultimate elimination of sin at the end of time, the destruction of all his foes, and even our very own eternal security as believers in Christ, it is as certain as tomorrow's sunrise because God is all-powerful. And God demonstrates this all throughout the Bible. Right, and let me, let me give you some examples. Like, if you and I want to create something from scratch, then we have to start with the raw materials. So, for example, if you want to bake a cake, you just can't say, presto change though, here's a cake. No, you need flour, and you need milk, and you need eggs, and you need butter, right? And if you're gluten-free or, or intolerant in some way, don't even get me into what all those things are, right? And so you, you need raw materials to bake a cake. If you're an artist, if you want to paint a work of art, Well, you need a canvas, you need paintbrushes, you need paint, you need water, you have to have raw materials. If you want to build a house, you need lumber, you need steel, you need nails, you need hammers, you need a plot of land. Like, you need all these things that are needed in order to build a house. See, whenever we try to attempt to create something, we always begin with the raw material. But God, as El Shaddai, does not have this restriction, Think about it. When God undertook his little creation project called the universe, he didn't go down to the local Ace Hardware, walk in, and like what I do, look at all the signs. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then that person in the little red vest comes up and says, sir, can I help you find something? And God didn't go, yes, can you tell me, where is your cosmic building section? Like, where do you keep the planets and the stardust Where do you keep the moon and the stars? Where do you keep all of that? Where do you keep the people? Because that didn't exist. Because when God built 
There were no building materials. It was simply this, Genesis 1.14, then God said, and it was so. God spoke it into existence. The entire universe came into being because God commanded it to exist. There is no greater demonstration of the power of God than creation. Listen, I'm teaching a course right now during our SL Institute classes called The Big Story. And I will argue to the day that I die that the, most, that the, the number one section of Scripture that takes the most faith to believe is not the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's not that he's coming back. It's not anything else in the Old Testament. It is the opening words of the Bible that says, in the beginning was God. If you could wrap your mind around that phrase, the rest of the Bible is cake. It's easy because there is nothing you can do to prove that in the beginning was God. There is no test. There is no scientific method. You have to take that at face value and go, because he is El Shaddai, because he is Yahweh, he's always been, and he can speak things into existence. Let's talk about how, how he shows his power to people. Let's talk about the slavery of, of, of the Jews in Egypt, right? 400 years of slavery. And God sends 10 plagues on the land. And after the death of all firstborn uh, children, all, all firstborn people, right? And what happens is that Pharaoh finally licks his wounds and says, you can go. And, and God says, oh, don't forget we learned this last week. All the women, you go to your next door neighbor, Egyptian neighbors, ask for all their clothes, ask for their possessions, all their jewelry, and they plundered Egypt. And two and a half million plus Jews walked out for the first time as freed men and women, having plundered the people that had enslaved them for 400 years. And after a couple days, they came up on this body of water. And they were like, oh, what are we going to do? We can't cross this water. Well, let's turn around. So they turn around. And here comes Pharaoh's army. And what happens? It says that God caused an easterly wind to, to come all night long. And when they woke up the next morning, the sea was parted and the ground was dry. And two and a half million plus Jews walked across on dry land. And when they got across, Pharaoh said, follow them. And when he followed them, God said, oh, this, I, I'm done with this. Let's unpart the sea. And they unparted the sea. And within one fell swoop, God destroyed the armies of Pharaoh. And what's interesting is that when you look throughout Scripture, you will see that God constantly tells his people, remember what I did in Egypt. Remember how I saved you. Remember the plagues. Remember the party of the Red Sea. Remember the destruction of Pharaoh's army. And then I want you to teach them to your children. Remember, remember, remember. The question is, why does God always want his people to remember the 400 years of slavery and what happened afterwards? And the reason is this, is because when we remember God's mighty deeds from yesteryears, it increases our faith and obedience today. Do you know that? When we are reminded of God's mighty deeds of yesteryears, we are, we, our faith increases and our obedience increases today. And here's the reason. We need constant reminders we are not very deep people when it comes to spiritual faith. We're not. It doesn't take much for us to fall off the bandwagon. I love it. We're walking through uh, the, the story of the scripture in my house, household, and we got through Exodus. And my two oldest girls said, Dad, I would never, ever leave God to, to, 
worship the golden calf, or I would never not go into the promised land. And I would never, and I'd be like, well, why? Because he parted the Red Sea, my girls would say, or because he sent manna from heaven, or because the, the pillar of fire during the nighttime, or the pillar of smoke during the day. And they go, we would never leave God. And I looked at them, I said, girls, I love you so much, but you would walk away just as fast as they did. You would. Because it's a picture of what we all are, where we all fail in the sense of God can do something mighty today and we will forget about it tomorrow. That's why we constantly need to be reminded. That's why we constantly need to be in God's word to be reminded about who God is and who we are and how those two reconcile together. That's why corporate worship is such a big deal to me. When we come together corporately like this, we're reminded of who God is, we're reminded of who we are, and and, and we're encouraged and we're challenged or we're convicted, but we're reminded. And as we're reminded, our faith stands firm. Why? Because when you are kicked, when you are down, it's easy to go home and to tell your wife, I'm done. I'm done. I got no more fight in me. I'm over. What else can we do? It's not fun. I don't know what to do. Because those conversations are easy to have when we get knocked down. And God says, be reminded. Be reminded so that your faith remains firm. And faith is really important when it comes to God's mighty power. In fact, in your next section, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about faith and God's mighty power and how they go hand in hand. I've heard it said on more than one occasion that if you don't expect to see God do any great things in your life, then you'll never be disappointed when he doesn't. If you never expect God to do any great things in your life, you'll never be disappointed when he doesn't. I think about my two-year-old. My two-year-old is in that weird phase that every, every uh, mom in the room is going to know or remember. It's the phase um, of mom, 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 mommy, 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 mom. Like, I could be sitting next to my child at the dining room table, and mom could be on the other side of the house, like, doing something. And Emmeline will go, mom, mom, mommy, mom. I'll go, what do you need, baby? No, mom, mom, mom. Christy will come out. And Christy will go, what do you need? Uh, Water. And I'm like, I literally am right here. Here's the water cup. Here's your high chair. But here's the thing. If I take that water cup, and I move it over, and it's not mom, my child will lose her ever freaking mind. It's crazy. Why? Because dad was not the right person to hand her her water. It had to be mom. Now, why is that? It's not because she doesn't love dad. It's just because mom's the one that she trusts. And mom is the one that she knows. Mom spends more time with her than anyone in our household, right? And so she knows that if she says to mom, mom is going to answer. And if it's a reasonable request... All right, not that a two-year-old knows what a reasonable request is, but if it's a reasonable request for my wife, then she'll, she'll do it. And it's not okay for Everly, or for Emmeline, I mean, if someone else does it that's not mom. It doesn't matter how inconvenient it is for mom because she trusts mom and she knows that mom's going to provide what I need. What about our life? That's how our life should be. Like, how many times do we call out dad, 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 Yahweh, El Shaddai, Daddy, come on, come on, come on. We don't. And when we look in Scripture, we see this. Did you know that your faith actually unleashes God's mighty power? Did you know that? Faith unleashes God's mighty power. In fact, when there's lack of faith, I want you to see what Jesus tells us. I think this is one of the more telling Scriptures 
in all, all of the Bible. It's in Mark chapter 6. It's going to be up on the screen. Jesus goes back to his own hometown. And he just wants to bless his hometown and pour truth into his hometown, speak blessings and, and do healings. So here's what happens. He says, Jesus went away from there and he came to his hometown and his disciples, they followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And where is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? And then I love this next part. It says, is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And so they took offense at him because they didn't like his teaching because it was too above his pay grade and his miracles were too great to wrap their minds around. So Jesus says to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And then I love this next part. It says, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. It's not that Jesus didn't want to do miracles. It didn't want, Jesus didn't want to do mighty things. It's just that the unbelief of the people, his own people, the people he rubbed elbows with, he grew, he grew up with, was so far removed that it's like, well, if you're not expecting anything, if you don't think I can do these things, if I'm nothing more than a carpenter's son to you, then I'm going to go somewhere else where they do have faith. And yeah, he found a smattering of some people here and there that had faith, and he did some miracles here or there. But he left disappointed because of the lack of faith. Did you know that God demonstrates his might by specializing and accomplishing the impossible? Did you know that? God flexes his muscles the most when we slick back and we go, that's impossible to do. How, how, is that, how is that going? In fact, the more difficult the task, I think we could say the more power is needed in our minds at least. So I want to give some examples of people in Scripture who had faith and that faith unleashed the power of God. Let's just, this are some, these are all your blanks. I think there's like five or six of them. Let's talk about Moses. We already mentioned it, but let's talk about Moses' part in the Red Sea. So we've talked about two and a half million plus Jews. They hit the Red Sea. They turn around. There's Pharaoh's army behind them. What would happen if Moses didn't have faith in that moment? What if this is what Moses said instead, in, instead of what he did in Scripture? What if he said, you know what, guys? I'm so sorry. I really thought we had a good chance to be free. Looks like we've hit a quote-unquote dead end. And we're obviously no match for Pharaoh's army. Why don't we just surrender to them? go back to Egypt. It's worked for us for 400 years. What's a lifetime again? What would happen in that moment? Well, the Bible would look a little different. But in Exodus 14, this is what Moses says. He says, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord with, with, with which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. What about Noah? All right, Noah, only righteous guy in the world. God's mad at his creation. Like they just, they're, they're despicable. They're horrible. And so God says, it's time to start over. So he goes to Moses and says, all right, Moses, uh, no, I'm sorry. He goes to Noah and says, Noah, here's what we're going to do. I want you to build a boat because it's going to rain. And you're going to say, I'm going to save your family and I'm going to save some animals. What, what would happen if this is how that conversation went? Noah looked at God and would say something like this. He goes, you know what? I know what you're saying. I hear something about a flood, but I've reasoned to myself about this. And here's the thing, God. It's literally never rained on earth before. 
I don't even know what that is. And you know what? It just looks to me like it's just not going to happen. So besides, I'm going to be honest, there's a lot more things, especially fun things, that I'd like to do instead of build a boat for your flood. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wait, and I'm going to see what happens. The story's a little different at that point. But instead, we see in Genesis 6 and 7 that Noah spent approximately 100 years constructing the ark, much to the chagrin and the ridicules and all the insults of his fellow man. And because of that, his family was saved, and so were the animals. What about Joshua? Joshua took over for Moses. So one of the first cities that Joshua and, and the uh, Israelites came upon when they crossed into the promised land was Jericho. Now, you don't know anything about Jericho except for its walls. That's what Jericho was known for. Jericho had two massive walls. They were impenetrable. In fact, the walls were so big, it says that there were houses that were actually built in between the walls. You just couldn't get through the walls. And so this is what God says. God says, all right, here's what's going to happen. I want you to take your army, I want you to walk around the outside of Jericho one time a day for six days. On the seventh day, I want you to do it for six times. And then on the seventh time, I want you to blow your trumpets. I want you to make a loud noise. And the walls that no one's ever penetrated before, they will come tumbling down. What if Joshua did this instead? He took a look at Jericho's massive walls. And he said, you know what? We're never going to breach those walls. And I'm not really sure that God's plan to march around the city that many times and then to shout, I just don't think that's going to work. And what, what's that possibly going to accomplish except for make us look really silly? Why don't we move on and try to find a city that's easier to take and we'll just let Jericho be? But instead, this is what Joshua said in Joshua 6. He says, take up the Ark of the Covenant. Let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And then he said to the people, Go forward and march around the city. And they marched around the city, and we know the song. And the walls came tumbling down. And the rest is history. What about Elijah? Elijah went up against 400 prophets. And he threw down a challenge. He goes, hey, okay, here's what we're going to do. I know it's 400 versus one, but we're going to go on top of the mountain. I'm going to build an altar. You're going to build an altar. You cry out to Baal. I'll cry, I'll cry out to Yahweh. We'll see who answers, and then we'll go from there. But what if it went differently? What if instead of Elijah throwing down the gauntlet, Elijah said this, you know what? I'm hopelessly outnumbered. 400 to one is never good. All the rest of God's prophets, they've been eliminated, and things aren't looking that good for me either. Maybe if I could just slip away quietly and hide out for a while, maybe they'll just forget about me. But instead, this is what Elijah did in 1 Kings 18. He prays, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. And it says the fire came down from heaven and consumed the offering. And then all 400 prophets of Baal were, were murdered, were killed. Let's do one more. Just let's go to the New Testament so you don't think that God's just the God of miracles in the, in the Old Testament. Let's talk about Peter. Okay, Peter, you know, the lead disciple, the guy who stuck his foot in his mouth more times than not, the guy that would tell Jesus, I'll never do this, and then he was the first person to do this. He was kind of a bonehead, the bonehead of disciples, all right? And on the day of Pentecost, that's when the Holy Spirit fell upon ordinary men for the first time ever. 
And it fell upon ordinary men, and God prompts Peter to stand up and to preach to all the Jews that were in town to celebrate the festival. What if instead of doing that, Peter did this instead? He says, you know, God, I know you want me to get up and I want you, you want me to preach to all these people, all these strangers, all these Jews. But you know what? They just turned on Jesus. They just crucified him. What hope do I possibly have, a simple fisherman, of reaching them? Maybe I should just go back to fishing and forget everything that I've just spent the last three plus years doing. But instead, this is what Peter did in Acts 2. He stood up and he preached and he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard it, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, What shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we see that the church was born because of Peter's obedience to stand up and to proclaim truth. See, apart from faith, I will argue all day long that God's almighty power is inaccessible and irrelevant to your daily living. If you walk around acting like God is not almighty, that he is not, he doesn't have this, we talked about this last week, that he's transcendent, then why in the world would God say, all right, here we go, let's do this, when you are living a life that acts like his power is irrelevant to your life anyway? God is still in the business of doing the impossible, guys. Maybe he's not sending fire down from heaven. At least I haven't seen it. Maybe he hasn't raised the dead. I'd love to see that. But I would argue that, you know what, I think God is doing even greater things today than he did in all those examples that we just gave. We memorialize those examples that we just gave, but I think he's doing greater things. Listen to Matthew 19. It's going to be, this is Jesus talking. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me just set this up real quick. Who is a rich person? If you are in this room right now, or if you're watching online, you are considered rich. Sit. You're one of the, I think it's like the top two or three percent wealthiest people in the world are sitting in this room right now. Okay? He says, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's not looking too good for us in the room. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and they said, well, then who can be saved? And then here's the miracle. Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. God's miracles now are working in the hearts of people to turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh, to convict us of sin, to grant us repentance. You know what the example of God's, the evidence of God's miracles are today? Change lives. That's it. God doesn't have to let fire rain down from heaven for the world to see that he's real because he's saving a people that should be difference makers in the world where we live because he's changed us. He's changed us and he's breathed life into dead man's bones. So the question is, all right, I get it. He's almighty, but how should El Shaddai affect me today? Because we're all gonna experience trials and we're all gonna experience obstacles Right? It's never going to be all you know, fun and dandy in life. 
So my question is, what is your response when the sea is before you and Pharaoh's army is behind you? How powerful is your God in that instance? Because this is what I would argue. And I don't think I even have to argue it that successfully because I think we're a living, breathing representation of this. I would say that the church in the United States demonstrates that the power of God is simply this. He's nothing more than a puny little God who can accomplish very little against the overwhelming circumstances of life. That's how I think the United States church, the westernized church, views the power of God. He is nothing but a puny God that cannot do anything. He's a cool God to tell our kids great stories over in SO Kids, but it's not who he is in my life. We talked about this last week. God is transcendent and he's imminent. We live in a world where we're great with the imminent part of God because God's our homeboy. He's our friend. I am a friend of God. We sing songs about this, but we do not believe that he's God all-powerful. That's the world we live in. And we wonder why the church and westernized Christianity is crumbling. Because we neglect to believe in the power of God. Because we want him to be more of a friend than to be God all-powerful. But instead, we need to recognize that God Almighty is the same God who can part seas, collapse walls, send fire from heaven, and save souls. We need to remember Malachi 3.6, where God from his own voice says, I, the Lord, will never change. He is the same infinite power today that he had when he sent down fire from heaven. And, the, and it's even greater today because you have that power inside of you if you are a believer because the spirit comes and dwells inside of you. The question is, are you experiencing it in your daily life? And so my question is, all right, I get it. I'm not doing it. So what do I do? What's the secret to experiencing God's power? We live in a world where we go down to Mardell and you buy the next book, Top 10 Ways to Be Great Parents or to Unleash the Power of God. I'm not going to give you 10 ways. I'm going to give you one way. All right, here it is. This is what we do. How do we experience God's power in our lives? 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. This is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak... Then I am, church, what's that word? Oh, we can do better than that. For when I am weak, then I am, you know what? The key is just like what Paul experienced. When we recognize that we're weaker than we actually think that we are, that is when we experience the power of God. When we think that we are strong, we just don't think we need Christ. We don't think we need God. When we think we've got this, when you're at work, and your boss has it out for you, too often it's too easy to depend upon your training. When things are going poorly, you can lean upon your natural abilities or the resources at your disposal or maybe the contacts to get you out of that situation. When you're confronted with life struggles, it's very easy for us to say, I've got this. I've got this. The problem is that when we think that we've got this, then we fall into the quintessential trap of Proverbs 16, 18. Pride always goes before the fall. When you think, I've got this, you're in trouble. 
When in reality, what we all have to be like, we have to be like Paul and we have to recognize our weaknesses and our insufficiencies. Like, I'm going to tell you something, and this might be the most freeing, or you could get super mad at me. I don't know. It's going to go one or one, one way or the other, okay? Let me tell you something. You are not the greatest parent in the world. You're not even the best worker in the world. You're definitely not the best driver. You're probably not the best neighbor. You are probably not number one in anything in your life. I'm just going to be 100% honest. And you know what? That's okay. Because the moment where you walk around going, I'm the best, then you have zero need to rely upon God. Because apparently you're a genius and you have it figured out. And you probably need to write a book so that you can become a millionaire. But when we recognize, you know what? I'm not the best parent. I'm not the best husband. I want to be, but I don't know how to. Let me tell you, I am a parent of four girls. My job is to point them to Jesus and make sure that they're still alive when they get to 18 or that I'm alive. One of the two, right? I don't even know how to do that. But that's okay. That's okay. We've made the transition. We're no longer church plant mode. We are a church. I told the deacons yesterday, I don't know how to be a pastor of a church. I know how to be a pastor of a church plant. I have no clue how to be your pastor. I am in this identity crisis mode. I'm going to be 100% honest with you. I don't know what to do. And that's okay. And that's okay. Because the moment I think I got this is the moment I don't need God. You're not the greatest at anything. And that's okay. That is okay. Because when you are weak, he is, what was that word again? He's strong. He is strong. But yet we go around and we quote verses like Philippians 4.13, but Joey, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We put it on t-shirts. We slap it on bumper stickers. We proclaim it before ball games. We treat the verse like it's our lucky rabbit's foot that we rub and it's got to come true, but we forget the part where Jesus says in John 15, 5, did you know that apart from me, you can do nothing? <laughs> so you go, all right, I'm conceited. I get it. I'm not great. Awesome. But how do we remind ourselves of this? Because you'll forget tomorrow what we say today. I'll forget tomorrow what we say today. How do we do this? The key to living a life that recognizes our weaknesses and our insufficiencies is this. It's prayer. It's prayer. Listen to me, folks. Prayerlessness says to God, I don't need you. I can do this on my own. That's what a prayerless life does. It's you acknowledging that you are the best. And because you are the best, you've got this. And prayerlessness, fall, uh, man, you're going to come crashing hard. But when we fall on our face and we proclaim to God, I don't got this. I don't know how to do this. When we depend on him in prayer, we acknowledge, you know what? I am weak and I need you. And then God says, that's good to know. You know why? Because I'm El Shaddai. How foolish am I as a pastor if I choose to deny that power and rely on my own feeble efforts through prayerlessness to try to live my life. Instead, like Paul, we should live a life where we recognize I am weak 
and I'm inadequate, but that's okay. Because when I'm weak, you are strong. Strong. And you know what? You'll forget this before next Sunday. Unless we spend time on our face just saying, God, I don't got this. How many restless nights have you spent tossing and turning because your kids are a mess? Because you're a mess. And you never even once thought, maybe I should pray about this because you're trying to solve this. He is the great El Shaddai. And if he didn't have to go down to Ace Hardware to go to the cosmic building section to build, you know, his little pet project called Earth and everything, right? I think he's got whatever going on in our life. He's got it. So we're going to do something that we've never done before. Well, I can't say that because we did the first service. This is only the second time ever in the history of South Lake, so we've done this. Uh, we're going to not say, do this and then go put this into practice later. We're going to say, let's do this now. So here's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to give you time. We always like to say, wrestle with the Lord over this, because I'm sure some of you probably are wrestling with, but I thought I was the best. That's okay. That's okay. Let, let Miley come in with that wrecking ball and just tear that down. You know what I'm saying? So... And that's okay. Maybe you need to talk to God about that. But what I'm doing for the first time ever is that I'm saying we're going to open up the front. And I love first service because the front was, there was people everywhere praying. And I'm going to ask you to come up front if you are physically able. And I realize that this is awkward. Especially if you didn't grow up in a church like this or if this is something you haven't done in a long time. Listen, I want you to come up front. I want you to fall on your face. And there's nothing special. God is no more here than he is in your, in your seat. And I want you to pray. I want you to pray for yourself. That you would rely on the strength of God. I want you to pray for your church. Whether this is your church home or not, pray for whatever church you call home. I would ask you to pray for me as your pastor. Let's pray. Because if we as a church can all humble ourselves and fall on our face, you know what we're telling God? We have no clue what we're doing as a church, but that's okay, because you're El Shaddai, and you've got this. If you're online, do this in your living room, like with your family. I would encourage families to pray together, honestly. Pray. If your kids are in the room and a lot of kids are out, pray with your kids. I would ask that this place would be flooded with humble people that say, I'm not the best, but when I am weak, then I know you are strong. Let's pray. Father, I come to you in the mighty name of Jesus. And Father, I confess that doing things my own way is way easier a lot of times than trying to trust on you. The problem is that it never turns out the right way. And Father, I confess that we're all very forgetful in this room, and I'm probably the most forgetful. I, I confess that. Father, I confess that I'm not the best at anything that I do, no matter how much I think to myself, maybe I am sometimes. I'm not. And God, in all of that, that's okay. Because last time I checked, Father, you're almighty. And I am not. And so, Father, I pray for those that are listening this morning, whether online, at home, 
or here. And God, I pray that maybe for the first time, people were shown that, you know what? There's a God that loves me. And as we read there in the Matthew passage, you're the only one that can change a person's heart. You came to seek and save the lost. So maybe there's someone in this room this morning that needs to cry out to you as Savior and Lord. And I pray that today would be that day in which they would do that. God, I pray for my fellow believers in this room. Maybe they bought too much into their, their press. Maybe they believe too much in their own natural abilities and powers. God, maybe you needed to humble them a little bit this morning. I know you need to humble me. <laughs> and to remind us that when we are weak, that's okay. It's not the end of the world, Father. Because that is when you are strong. God, many times we find ourselves faced between a sea and an army. And the question is, how powerful is our God in those moments? And so, Father, I pray for these next several moments as people pray. I pray that you would encourage those that feel like they can do nothing right. And let them remind them that you're with them every step of the way. I pray for those that think they're the best at what they do. I pray that you'd humble them a little bit. And remind them that you want to work mightily in their lives, but you can't when they walk around with this arrogance about them, believing they don't need you. And then I just pray for the everyday Joe who are just, we're just forgetful people. <laughs> we can love you more than anything one day and the next day when the world comes crashing down, we forget about you. Father, I pray that in those moments that you would remind us to pray and that through our prayers, you would flex and you would show yourself to be who you are and that's El Shaddai. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to invite you. One, would you just pray there for a moment? Duke it out with God if you need to. But then we're opening up the front, first time ever. Would you pray for yourself? Would you pray for your church? Would you pray for your pastor? Pray for your loved ones. Pray for those that need Jesus. And just pray and be reminded that you are weak, but that's okay because he's strong. Father, would you work in this room in a powerful way? The altar is open when you're ready to come up and pray as Grant and the band play in the background. Thanks again for listening to this message. For more information about South Lakes Church, go to slchurch.life.